Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Marketer, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like marketplace mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Surge was a perfect automated kind of balancing tool between a two-sided marketplace. Also, having been in a three-sided marketplace, you realize the complexity that that adds also adds a challenge here. When things start to become imbalanced, it's a little harder to just have a surge pricing change, right? I'm here to deliver food, and all of a sudden, all of this demand comes in. Delivery times start to go up. Restaurants get backed up. Um, there's another another complexity. Just changing prices doesn't necessarily can fix that, but there are some other factors that obviously start to play in. Um, how did that affect supply uh, and, and demand, for that matter, um, as you started to deal with the complexity of the three sided marketplaces versus the two sided? Yeah, that's yeah. Supply gets it gets really interesting with three sides. And, and Ty, yeah, I realized we should have you know we should we should ask you know you for kind of the surge stories as much as anyone else. Um, <laughs> You know, I would say so for three sides, you know, the most extreme example we had was we had this, you know, one of the key promotions that grew the ride sharing business was give 20, get 20, right? That was, I, I don't know if those of us remember, you know, there was like sidecar and there was lit, right? Like Lyft and there's yeah. all these different ride sharing platforms. They're all competing with each other. And, you know, if you gave, if you you'd give someone $20 off their neck, off their first ride in an exchange, you would get 20 bucks on there are people who, you know, didn't pay for a trip for, for months. They were so aggressive, but it was generally a good promotion. What, what we, so we tried it in eats. Uh, we tried give 20, get 20. Uh, and I think we signed up all of Kennesaw State University in like a week because it turns out that like, I'm not going to, you know, yes, I would like a free ride, but I'm not going to use a free ride until I need it. I will order f- free food right now, even if I'm not hungry. Like I'm yeah. always down for free food. Uh, and so. You know, we ended up with this massive demand imbalance where our restaurants were actually, for the most part, able to keep up with the demand. Uh, although we did have one night where uh, the Hudson Grill nearby, I think, actually had 200 cars cycle through their parking lot for pickup. Uh, it was total bananas. Uh, but we actually ran out of drivers and we started getting photos from our restaurants of, you know, big piles of Oh, yeah, they're like, hey, yeah. here's this like mountain of burger I made. Uh, is anyone going to pick up these orders? Oh, gosh. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad news. So what's interesting is you end up with, yeah, supply shortage on one side of the marketplace can actually impact other sides of the marketplace mm. where if you have a courier, you know, and let's say you start pricing it in. I think that's what Uber does now. There is some like surge pricing on delivery mm. fees. Restaurant pricing doesn't surge, but they do tend to just turn off the iPad. You know, you can imagine if, if, if there's surge pricing on the delivery fee, the restaurant's going to see less demand, right? Mm-hmm. If the restaurant turns off their iPad, the courier may not get trips. And so there is, you know, the sides of the uh, marketplace become, a, you know, are, are much more codependent, you know, or, or just as codependent, there's just more actors. 
Yeah. And I, I remember from my world, we saw this kind of natural reaction to delivery times, right? Because the other, the other part of the algorithm was delivery times would go up drastically. All of a sudden, shoppers come on and go, hey, I'm going to get pizza tonight. Oh, out, out, you know, hour and a half, two hour wait? Maybe not, right? And so you naturally see some of that attrition start to drop off. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So the other the other place that I'd love to hear a little bit about is you know in bellhop obviously not as dynamic not food not not rides this is a, a like you said a, a highly stressful usually very important piece of someone's life having to move needing to move um, but it doesn't happen all the time people aren't moving every six months all the time they're you know th- this is something that happens. Um, how, how did you guys, and, and I'm assuming is it's a seasonal business, how, how did you think about supply and demand constraints uh, there, and mainly from your suppliers? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for Bellhop, you know, on your, to your point on the demand side, moving is not something people do every week, every, you know, every month even. So even the best customer experience yields limited additional near-term revenue from that customer. Although certainly word of mouth is extremely powerful. You know, on the supply side, the business was very seasonal. And so really what was interesting, you know, the other thing that's interesting about bellhop and about moving is moving is a skill. It's a little bit different than something like driving a car. It's a skill. It's a skill with varying levels of differentiation that dramatically impact the customer experience. And it's a skill where there's no state agency decry, you know, making a decision on whether or not you can or cannot do it. Right. I can't just be like, you know, anyone with a mover's license, you know, we can, we'll let you on the platform. So what you're really trying to do, and, and I won't give you exact numbers in terms of seasonality, but, but it was dramatic. It, I mean, it was dramatic. You know, the difference between what you would do in this, you know, the last weekend of June and, you know, maybe an entire month in the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so it was dramatic seasonality. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to hot hold on to the highest skill elements of your supply base. And for us, that was our crew leads. That was what we called something called a captain. It was kind of a status that we created inside of uh, the movers. And so your goal is over this, you know, going into your spring ramp is really not just to have enough movers to sort of do the moves, but to have enough captains to lead and captain individual moves. And then your goal going into the winter is to hold on to as many of those captains as possible because they're the ones that take the longest time to train. You want to hold on to your captains in the winter. And then when you come back into the spring again, right, those are the ones who form your baseline growth. And then you need to grow more captains from your new recruits in order to kind of meet your growth goals. Interesting. So you actually kind of created different levels of, of your operators and, and were able to, to kind of look at your supply base that way or your team base that way. Yeah. And that became more and more important as we get into larger and larger moves. Just because, you know, if there's two guys doing a move together, moving someone out of a dorm room, they can kind of figure out what they need to do on their own. Once there's four people, someone needs to organize. Someone's, mm-hmm. you know, someone, someone needs to, you know, kind of help, help facilitate. Well, one of the things I want to bring up, Bellhop has started to figure this out. Uh, they just sort of popped up here in Seattle. Um, I'm seeing, you know, uh, uh, I'm seeing big roadside signs um, of, of Bellhop coming into town. So they've, they've figured this out. Um, as you said, it's a cyclical business. It's a skilled, you know, skilled job that, that needs, you know, special operators. Um, but they've started to figure out this, uh, this demand side uh, in a pretty powerful way. How does Bellhop really differentiate itself out there 
or from what you see in your experience, what do they do? Yeah, you think in terms of how the service is delivered, you know, in terms of service quality or in terms of acquisition tactics? Either, either way, how did they get, how did they start to grow where it doesn't seem like yeah. as many have been able to, to stick with it? Yeah. So I think, you know, the couple things, you know, if you compare Bellhop to existing, you know, maybe other physical item startups, you know, there was something around doing the whole move element uh, and then showing up with the right asset size, that being a box truck, not, I think, getting too confined in the peer to peer world of, you know, like, hey, can I do this with pickup trucks? Yeah. You know, I think, I think was an important, you have to, you know, when you're going into an industry, and you're trying to disrupt it, you need to figure out what elements now that, you know, you can throw away and don't make sense with kind of maybe a new model. Uh, and then you need to figure out what elements are that way, you know, because of, you know, almost physical constraints in the industry or just kind of hard fought learnings. You know, on the marketing side, one of the advantages that Bellops has over local movers is having a centralized marketing team and building that as a core competency inside of the organization. And obviously I wasn't on that side of the business, but you know, the ability to stay ahead from a tactic perspective on customer acquisition in a business where again, you know, 80% of your customers need to be acquired, right? Uh, you know, or some very high percentage because you have limited repeat business, at least within a given year. People may come back the next year when they move, uh, but because you because so much you know you have to acquire each customer, being able to build that as a core competency versus what a you know an individual franchise player you know with with maybe someone who thinks about marketing part time um, you know that, that that was actually a, a very powerful muscle for the company. And how would the marketing team get more customers? I mean, it sounds like they probably did some paid acquisitions and paid marketing. What were the other main drivers besides that? Yeah, I'm I'm super out of my depth here. Uh, you know, so so yeah, I that's I would I would not you know, I'm sure we had a better paid team than you know, than a local uh group. Having a national booking organization meant that like getting a quote was really easy, you know, whether both online, the fact you can actually get a quote online, you know, without having to like have someone call you back three days later is huge. Uh, for people who want to talk to someone on the phone, we had a national call center. Uh, that's available oh, nice. from you know 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. and again, you get a real person. They talk to you right away. They give you a quote right nice. away. Um, so, however, you know, even aside from kind of the the acquisition, you, you know, the top of funnel. How am I getting people into my funnel? You know, there are a lot of elements where you know we just kind of lubricated the purchase experience and made it something that's less opaque, less miserable, less sketchy, less feels like. You know, you're, you know, a lot of movers again, because, because it's so seasonal and because everybody almost hits capacity towards, you know, the end of month, June and July, you know, feels like there's a lot, is there's a lot of price discrimination out there? Are they like looking at my house on street view and deciding they don't want to serve me? You know, and so just, just being like an honest, transparent, fast, easy company to do business with, I think goes a long way on the marketing side. Yeah. I could see that. It seems like the, the customer support can be playing hand in hand with the marketing too. If, if they get a call or maybe it's kind of like sales with support too, you know, they get a call within, you know, minutes of showing interest and signing up for a move. I think that that stuff can go really, really far compared to the pain filled. I think I heard Luke say the pain filled experience of a traditional moving company, right? Where it's, it might be a day before they get to you. They email you. It's this huge email has three attachments. 
says $800, but you're worried it's going to be a thousand, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and to your point, you know, like I, we did have a leads business, you know, where we would, we're able to purchase leads and call those and, you know, execute on that at a higher level, uh, of excellence and, you know, drive down kind of the, the, the cost of acquisition on that part of the business versus, you know, again, versus kind of what someone without a nationalized structure would do. Um, and I think that is part of the powers with Bellhop is technology got to the point where you can actually centralize and nationalize a good portion of your functions. Obviously, the people doing the actual work have to be in that city, but you can maintain quality at a national level without having to franchise out each individual market. Interesting. So Ty and I always ask the chicken or the egg, which came first for the marketplace. So the egg being the supply, the chicken being demand. How about bellhops? Which which came first? So so you guys tell me. I'll tell you the story of how it came together. Cam and Stephen were the two folks that founded the company, and they initially called it the Dorm Movers. And they were it was just them and I think a bunch of their friends, and I believe it was like neon orange T-shirts, offering to help move kids into their dorm uh, on you know on move-in day. Yeah, marketplaces create magic when supply and demand come together at the same time. You know, the maybe the chicken existed ahead of time, uh, and they were able to be the egg that walked into the picture with the neon shirt on. With the neon <laughs> shirt, <laughs> I like it. And, and I guess maybe a little bit more specifically, as you're building your own company, obviously, you know, I think it assumes the fact that there is a problem that you're solving. Um, but you know, we've talked about it a couple different times. You can subsidize different sides of the marketplace. Um, and, and how would you coach, you know, a founder, uh, some entrepreneurs who are thinking about this problem of where to spend their effort, their time, their money, um, in, in starting off this problem and how to think about it? Yeah. At the end of the day, you have to make sure that the people who want to give you money can give you money. Uh, and that almost always means subsidizing the supply side of the marketplace. That's that's my perspective in my current business as well as others. Now, you can strike a balance there. You know, you need to figure out what level of availability is required. Do I need to have every single restaurant in town on my platform? Do I need to have a hundred? Do I need to have a thousand? What does that look like? Because subsidizing is, you know, do I need to have what what level of delivery availability do I need to have? Do I need to be able to get you your food in 15 minutes? Is 30 right, okay? Right. Uh, so you need to understand your customer. You need to understand the dynamics of the marketplace you're operating in. But at the end of the day, you need to make sure that when someone wants to give you money, uh, one, they're physically able to. They're able to like actually order a meal. They're actually able to book a move. They're able to do, you know, the activity they're trying to do. And then you need to figure out, okay, if there's a, you know, quality or availability fall off, uh, you know, how steep is that? Um, you know, and, and, and how much do I want to invest in subsidizing to, uh, you know, make sure that, that, that I capture that additional revenue? And then what's, what will be the step two after subsidize? Well, every subsidy exists with the goal of, you know, spinning the flywheel fast enough that the subsidy goes away. And so sheds it. Yeah. 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 It's It's like, I don't need that. Yeah. Well, you go from, you know, you think of it like a water mill, right? Like you go from pouring money on the water mill to get it to spend to the water mill, just kicking off its own money. I don't know. That's, that's my visual. It's funny. I keep going back in, in multiple parts of the conversation. I keep remembering those E24 emails. I don't know if you guys were part of this, but I this remember Yelp's years ago. Thing, as, right? 
as E24 was, you know, getting restaurants, you know, they were just obviously a, a takeout, you know, world, but you would get these perfectly timed emails at Friday at like 445 Ooh, that would give you perfect 20% off, <laughs> 20% off to <laughs> hit the app and order your takeout just before dinner started on, on a Friday night. And they did this religiously, like it was every Friday all the time, and it started to build that habit. I think to your point, though, Peter, it felt like they were subsidizing me and my dollar because I'm the one that was spending. But inevitably, they got the restaurants to give up a piece of their revenue. And so it seemed like I was the one that was was being subsidized, that I, that I, I was the one paying, and therefore it would be odd to subsidize me, but I wasn't, right? They wanted that restaurant commission in the end and so they were generating that demand and willing to keep that uh for that period of time to build up that habit yeah that's a great point is that the money that comes into one side of the marketplace can flow to another yeah um, especially when it's the consumer side i think i have a great example of that step two after the subsidy so down the street from there's a restaurant called hurry curry and it's japanese style curry okay and they've been they pretty much seems like they opened the moment COVID started and I drive by and I'm like, oh, that place looks so cute. You know, like I, I'll go eat there sometime once things get safer. And then I, I end up finding out that the one time that I go in, they're just filling so many food delivery orders, you know, and I'm like, wow, this is keeping, keeping them alive. Like, l- let's just pretend a very dramatic situation. Right. And then let's say after COVID starts to slow down, well, maybe they're so, you know, maybe 50% of their revenue of their profit comes from, from DoorDash or from Uber Eats. Well, now they can't, they can't really live without it, right? The flywheel is already in motion. They can shed off any subsidies of the initial restaurant partnership that they have with any of these platforms and they, and they kind of need to, 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 to exist. So I think at that point, it's a great example of these restaurants to sustain that they, they, they have to be, be a partner of doing food delivery. Yeah. It's become. It's yeah. It, it I think for a certain type of restaurant, at a certain price point, and with food that travels well, it, it's an indispensable. You know, it should be an. It's it's a, it should be part of your business plan. Right. Right. Should be a, a channel. So yeah, Peter, j- j- uh, just to wrap this out. So we do something on every episode called Rapid Mayhem Questions. So if you're ready, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you these questions. Sounds good. All right. What marketplace would Peter be? Oh, wow. That's crazy. Uh, would Peter be? Oh, man, guys. I have no idea. I mean, I'd like to think an ideas marketplace, but you know, maybe that's just kind of self-aggrandizing. Oh, we, we could buy you some time. We can come back to that one. Um, also, Thai would be a marketplace for cigars and fine whiskey. Okay, second question. <laughs> What's a marketplace you like that is not so popular or well-known? I'm drawing a blank at this one, Jacob. Uh, let's see. I'm not a very adventurous person. So if a marketplace is not very well known, then, uh, I may not, I may not know about it. Yeah. Uh, I did spend a little bit of time on next door, uh, for kind of used goods. I found that's an effective way when, mm. you know, my wife and I moved out of Chattanooga. Uh, we were able to, you know, same day, uh, dispose of our appliances because we didn't plan very well. Again, not for a great place, but you know, you need to get rid of something same day. Then the market clearing price may be a lot lower. So, uh, good for next door, uh, on expanding there. They're secretly huge. It seems like, like there's so many of these next door because it's by neighborhood sometimes, right? And there's so many neighborhoods 
in America. It's a great example. What's your favorite marketplace that failed? Okay. So I would not, you know, they're going to just take like great, it's not fair to call them a failure because they still kick off lots of cash. But I think eBay versus Amazon is a very instructive, um, you know, is, is very, is, is very instructive for, for a variety of reasons. You know, basically anything you can buy on Amazon, you can also buy on eBay. The difference is that eBay does not attempt to manage the actual service experience, right? They're kind of almost just literally a marketplace. You can, someone who wants to sell something, someone who wants to buy something, you meet in the middle. And that is, it turns out, probably the most profitable structure, uh, of digital marketplace. It's, it's a wonderful cash cow. You just sort of sit at the gates and, you know, collect the money as it, as it walks by in front of you. Um, you know, you take some percentage there. You don't have all of this. You know this kind of like intensive capital infrastructure that someone like Amazon has has, has mm-hmm. kind of created. The thing though is that you know maybe going back boomeranging back to our original conversation around like you know marketplace supply quality mm-hmm. uh, is that marketplaces are just you know inherently messier places. And I think maybe the caveat is unless someone comes in to like very aggressively manage them. You know, remember Amazon didn't start off as the marketplace. Today, most of their items are, you know, or what, at least half are sold by marketplace sellers. But initially, they, they were literally just that first party store bringing, you know, uh, uh, making sure that there's a really high standard of excellence, um, you know, it, primarily around the delivery and fulfillment experience. Uh, and that is ultimately, you know, if you can have first party, uh, kind of quality assurance while still having the like variety, diversity and cost structure of a third party marketplace. That is what customers want. It's just a very challenging business to run. Very hard. Yeah. And finally, what's a marketplace that doesn't exist yet, but it totally should. Okay. So I feel like there should be something around cocktails, uh, a cocktail marketplace. <laughs> and I realize there's like high risk of like, you know, this is like a health code, like getting ill and like it exists only at a, at a, at a, at a, at a individual location. But, you know, one of my favorite restaurants in Atlanta is this place called Gun Show. And they have usually, I think it's like five or six chefs that make each chef makes a meal, uh, and then walks around the dining room and hawks at dim sum style. I have no idea how they're doing during COVID. I, I should check in. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's awesome because you have, it's, you're, you're this friendly, but you know, competition, it's a competition. You're, you're literally competing with all the people next to you <laughs> to fill the limited amount of stomach space. Yeah, the diners are bringing, and usually it's your stomach that gives out before your wallet. Although your wallet may give out too. And, and I think actually the way they do it is whoever's item, the first person to like not be able to sell their item, ends up having to go work the dessert cart or something like that, right? Like there's actually like a little bit of shame involved, you know, if your like creation isn't sold, right? Um, but I feel like there should be something like this for cocktails. But maybe you can make it Love even it. more free flowing. Where, you know, anyone could kind of create or design a cocktail. I don't know exactly how this marketplace would work. And maybe as I'm talking, it's clear that it wouldn't, but some sort of marketplace for cocktails really driving. I, I think it's, you know, it's crazy that it's taken us almost a century since prohibition to kind of recover a really strong cocktail culture. Right. Um, but I'm a big fan of anything that'll take that even further. It, there was during COVID, they did the, the meal packets. You would pay $80 and you would get this whole family meal. I, I saw ones for cocktails before too. So it's almost like let's take that to the to the startup yeah. scaling level, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So, Peter, what's the next big step change in marketplaces if if you think there is one? I'm hesitant to make predictions here. I, I think, you know, what we are seeing is that 
there are going to be more and more services that involve, you know, humans and physical activity that people will try to deliver in the marketplace model. You know, you can even see a lot of what's happening in like long haul trucking is kind of, you know, and again, that's always been a marketplace, but, you know, something that's kind of trying to digitize that marketplace. And really what you're trying to harness is you're, I think you're trying to harness ownership in a lot of ways uh, in that the owner of a business is going to work harder and is going to uh, bring more creativity and because it's their business, right? And so can you come up with the scaled distribution of a, you know, national company, but still have, you know, maybe the majority of the participants feel like they're owners or something. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's yeah. huge potential there, but I think that's also doing that right, not creating an antagonistic relationship between the marketplace participants and the marketplace manager uh, is one of the biggest challenges. That is tough. Yeah. Peter, where can we find you? Do you have any asks of the audience before you go? I love physical marketplaces. I love digital, uh, physical. I think, you know, the pandemic taught us anything. It's that, uh, you know, we're not just digital beings and you can't just make, uh, so anyone who wants to jam on those topics is, is more than welcome to reach out. That's my ask. You can hit me at, I'm at Peter at PeterHSU.org. So jam on. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Peter, it was really sweet talking to you. Maybe we can do it again sometime. But uh, yeah, thanks for carving out an hour to, to talk to us and nerd out about this. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Ty. Great chatting with you guys. Absolutely. All right. Bye, guys. See you now. Ciao. What a phenomenal episode, huh, Ty? Yeah, that was great. And we really hope that you got as much out of it listening to it as we did making it. Thank you for listening in. Yes, I second that. Thank you. And don't forget, you can like and subscribe if you wish. We'd rather hear of your thoughts. So tell us what you think of the episode and leave a review, please. Mayhem on, Ty. Yeah, mayhem on, Jacob. Jacob.